chapter 1 again tonight. chapter 1. Before we get to the text, I know there are prayer concerns. We've already talked about Miss Nancy and all right, Malachi chapter 1 and we will begin in verse 6. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. <clears throat> a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces and the refuse of your solemn feast, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned away many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you have departed from the way you have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. 
Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. And so there, uh, uh, Malachi continues his message and rebukes the people for their unacceptable worship. And this message is directed mostly at the priests who have the responsibility to lead and direct the people. Um, now, Ms. Jenny, Sonny, you, had, you said you had some questions for Malachi chapter 1. Do you got them with you or you want to uh, drive on? Yes, absolutely. No, no, you know, um, that that's it. Yeah, God, all have sinned, all fall short of God's holy standard. There is none that is righteous, not even one. Um, and, and so God would be justified in loving no one. But because of his mercy and grace, he sets his love on, on his people, on his children. So, yes, that's exactly right. Just, you know, what Paul, God's purpose of grace. Um, and so, no, they both deserved God's wrath. But in mercy, God chose to show favor to Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. The the idea is simply God's God's sovereignty and God's sovereign sovereign choice. He uh, he. No difference between Jacob and Esau. Same parents conceived at the same time, uh, but because of God's purpose of grace, he he chose to put his favor on on Jacob and. And that's uh, and the people of Israel had come to doubt that in Malachi. They had just come out of exile. They were experiencing very difficult times. Things weren't going as they expected. You know, if we're God's chosen people and God loves us and God has promised to bless us, where is the blessing? <laughs> Why are things so hard? And we can look over at Esau, we look over to Edom, and they seem to be doing great. They seem to be prospering. They're up in the, the fortress, our walls torn down, and uh, you know Esau's up there, and they seem to be prospering. And so when Malachi reassures the people of God's love, they ask, how have you loved us? What's the evidence of your love? And because they doubted God's love, they had slipped into complacency and laziness in worship. And so that's what, uh, that's what Malachi addresses next. So he, so he assures the people of God's love for them in spite of their circumstances, and then he challenges them because of their unacceptable worship. And, uh, uh, and so in verse 6, he, you know, he, a son honors his father and a servant his master. 
If then I am the Father, where's my honor? If a master, where is my reverence? And so God uh, tells the people through Malachi that He is worthy of honor. He is worthy of reverence. He has loved His people, and He is like a father to them. He has become a father to them. He has become a master to them. And as a result, He is worthy of their honor and their devotion and their reverence. And yet they have not given Him that honor that He has deserved. And so he begins, you know, a son honors his father. Now, God is father by virtue of creation. You know, perhaps the, most, the five most important words uh, uh, a guy I listened to his, his podcast, Tom Askell, said, you know, the five most important words ever written are the first five words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And that sets the, you know, that sets the stage for everything that happens in the Bible because God is eternal and He existed in the beginning and He purposed to create. This is His world. This is His universe. He is the Creator. And as Creator, He has the right to set the standard. He has the right to tell us what we ought to do. He is our owner. He is our Creator. He is our Master. And, uh, and so God has the, the right to, uh, uh, to tell us the standard because He chose to create for His own glory and He lays down the standard uh, for His creatures and how we who have been created in the image of God are to reflect His glory. And so He gives the rules, He gives the standard, but all people have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard. We've all rebelled. Uh, we've fell into a condition of sin and misery, and we deserve nothing from God. Esau deserved nothing from God. Jacob deserved nothing from God. We deserve nothing from God except His wrath, His anger, and His justice. We're, we're like the younger son in the parable of the, the prodigal son. I like to call it the parable of the loving father because... He's the hero of the story, not the prodigal, wasteful son. But in that, in that parable in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the loving father, the younger son wants his stuff. He wants his possessions. He, he looks at his dad and says, you know, I wish you were dead and that all your possessions were now mine. He loved the father's possessions more than he loved the father. And he asked the father to give him his stuff. And he took his stuff and went to the far country. Well, all of us... That's what we all did. We all rebelled against God, and we loved the gift better than the giver. We worshiped the created thing rather than the creator, and we took our stuff and we went to the far country, uh, just like that younger son in that parable in Luke 15. And then like the, uh, uh, those of us who have been redeemed, uh, like that son when he got in the far country, uh, he recognized that people in the far country treated the pigs better than they treated him. He had a job feeding the pigs. People were feeding the pigs, but nobody gave him anything. Uh, so they were treating their pigs better than they were treating him, and he longed to eat what was being given to the pigs, and he came to his senses and recognized that the servants in his father's house had it far better than he had, and he would get up out of the pig pen Go back to the Father and request to be a servant in His house. And so that He came to His senses, He was brought to repentance, and He returned to the Father. And when He returned to the Father, 
he saw that the Father had been seeking after him all along. As he was still a long way away, the Father ran to him and received him and didn't just make him a servant, but welcomed him back as his son, as his beloved son. And so uh, uh, if, if we have come to God in repentance and faith, that's all of our story. We loved the gifts better than the giver. We took our stuff. We went to the far country. We made a mess. And by God's grace, we came to our senses, came back to the Father, and found the Father welcoming us back home. Uh, and and, and he, he, he loved His people. And because of His love for His people, uh, He is worthy of honor. He has showered His love and His mercy and His grace upon Him. And... Uh, on us and, and welcomes us. And as our Father, He is worthy of honor. Uh, what's the other relationship? He talks about the relationship between a son and a father. What other relationship does Malachi talk about in chapter 6, verse 1? All right, servant and master. And that kind of brings up a topic, you know, that maybe you've uh, uh, heard a, a contemporary talk, topic. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about, about slavery uh, in our culture. Um, people, uh, you know, looking back to the impact that slavery has had. And uh, one of the criticisms of the Bible that people will make, one of the reasons people, one of the excuses people give for uh, not believing the Bible and and wanting anything to do with Christianity is they said the Bible never condemns slavery. The Bible never condemns slavery, and it it is true that uh, 150 years ago, you know, that, that, that people would go to the Bible and use that as a justification for slavery in, in the United States. Uh, um, but when we read about slavery in the Bible, we must constantly remind ourselves that slavery, as it's discussed in the Bible, is not giving approval to the form of slavery that was practiced in Mississippi, the southern portions of the United States before the Civil War. Uh, the, the slavery that's discussed in the Bible is totally different than the, the slave trade in the United Kingdom and the United States back uh, 200 years ago where people were bought and sold as property, uh, bought and sold as property uh, based solely on their ethnicity, the color of their skin, the amount of melon and genetically produced in that person as a result of an adaptation to their environment. Um, we should never use anything in the Bible to justify the historic slave trade uh, as it was practiced in the history of the United States. Um, because the Bible condemns kidnapping or literally man-stealing in 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy the, says, uh, let's see, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, The law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers. And the literal translation of that word is man-stealers, someone who deprives a man of his freedom and who takes that man captive and treats him as property. That is in the same list as fornicators, sodomites, murderers, ungodly, evil, and so, uh, so uh, a man stealing, depriving someone of his freedom. And then the text goes on for liars, for perjurers, if there's anything else contrary to sound doctrine. 
according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which is committed to my trust. And so the Bible condemns man-stealing. And that's the type of slavery that was practiced in the United States and the United Kingdom back before the Civil War. The Bible condemns that. And uh, in fact, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, it says, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. And so the Bible condemns that practice, kidnapping a man and selling him, uh, a crime punishable by death. And so the Bible condemns slavery as it was practiced in the United States 200 years ago. And slavery in the Bible was to be marked by extreme kindness. The Hebrew slave owners were to always remember that they had been slaves in Egypt and that they should always treat their slaves as they themselves would want to be treated. And so there was slavery in in Old Testament Israel, but the owners were to remember that they'd been slaves and they were to practice the golden rule, to treat their slaves as they wanted to be treated. And slavery in the Bible was really the first form of bankruptcy law. It's in Exodus chapter 21 where this is addressed. Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she's borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master will pierce his ear with an owl, and she, uh, and and he shall serve him forever. And so, slavery in the Bible was the first form of bankruptcy law. In ancient Israel, when a person was not able to pay his debts, the government didn't step in to help bail him out. The government didn't come in and say, well, you, you can only, you know, you, you can declare bankruptcy and you only have to pay your debt back 10 cents on the dollar or whatever it might be. The government didn't step in to bail somebody out when they uh, became indebted and could not pay off what they owed. Instead, the person had to sell the only thing that he had left. He had no possessions, he had no money, he had no property, he had no crop, he had nothing to sell to raise the money to pay off his debt. And so he was able to sell the only thing that he had left, which was what? His labor, himself, his labor, his ability to do work. And so uh, uh, the person would, would sell his ability to perform labor. And the person would work and make a wage that would cover the debt. And while he was covering the debt, the poor person had a place to live. Uh, he would be trained in a marketable skill. And there was also a time limit. There was a six-year arrangement. The servant was not kidnapped and held in chains. It was a voluntary arrangement. And it was chosen instead of going to debtor's prison or even death from starvation or exposure because he had nowhere to live, no, nothing to eat. 
And so it was a way that a person who had fallen on hard times, who had gone into debt, would be able to get back on his feet. To work for six years, to be trained in a skill, and then after six years go and do that skill for profit. And, uh, and, and a servant was to honor his master, and the master was to treat the servant with kindness and respect as a fellow image bearer of God. It was, you know, the, the servant was not viewed as the owner's property, but was selling his labor in order to pay his debt. And so he's to be treated with dignity and respect. Uh, and, and here, God uses that image for his relationship with his people. He is the master. We are the servants. We are poor and needy. We are bankrupt. We are absolutely incapable of providing for ourselves. And we recognize our need. We recognize our dependence. And uh, we, 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 we turn to God to protect and to provide for us. Uh, and God's people are His servant. He is the master. He is the creator. He has the right to make the rules. And so, uh, so we recognize our need, our bankruptcy, our dependency, and we run to God for protection, and we become His servants. And we find this master to be gracious and kind, worthy of our honor, uh, because God has rescued us, because He has saved us, because He protects us and provides for us. He is worthy of our reverence. He says, if then I'm the Father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. And then he speaks to the priest, to you priests who despise my name. And so the people, particularly the priest, are not giving God the honor and reverence that he deserves as Father and as Master and as Lord of Hosts, uh, the, the title, just like in Zechariah, the Lord of Hosts, the title Lord of Hosts is repeated over and over in this passage. God is our Father by virtue of creation and by virtue of adoption, allowing us into His family. He is our Master because we were poor and needy and we came to Him for protection and provision and uh, have become His servants and, uh, and come under His protection and He is also the Lord of hosts, the commander of heavenly armies. He is worthy of our reverence and our honor. But instead of honoring God as Father and reverencing Him as Master and worshiping Him as the Lord of hosts, they had despised His name. They have treated His name with disrespect. They treat His presence as bothersome, as wearying. And so they uh, are, uh, are all guilty, but God uh, singles out the leaders, the priests, the ones that are to be the protectors of God's holiness, the ones who are to, to lead the people in appropriate worship. The priests have become the source of profaning God's name, seeing His presence as worthless and burdensome. And this goes back to, the Lord says, I've loved you. Well, have you, lo have you loved us? And because we don't feel evidence of your love, we're kind of holding back in worship and taking care of ourselves. 
And instead of bringing you the best as you demand, we are bringing you leftovers. And so the Lord rebukes him. You have despised my name. And, and the priest said, in what way have we despised your name? No, we're going to the temple and we're making the sacrifices and we're doing all the right things. We're living according to the covenant. But God, uh, God rebukes them and says, no, you're offering unacceptable worship. You're just going through the motions. You're not bringing your best. You're bringing leftovers. Uh, and, and so the priest had, had failed to see the significance of what they were called to do. He says, you, defiled, you offered defiled food on my altar. But you say, well, what way have you defiled you? The table of the Lord is contemptible. And so they're not recognizing the holiness of what they are called to do. Perhaps the, the priests have come to see their, their work in the temple as just a job. It's just what they do. They're born into the tribe of Levi. They were born into the uh, priestly family. Serving in the temple is what they do. That's their occupation. That's their job. That's how they make a living. And so they see their work in the temple just as a, just as a job. Not as a calling to protect and promote the holiness of God. They don't see it as service to the Lord. Um, they don't recognize the awesome responsibility that they have as priests. To them, it's just what they do. That's how they make a living. This guy farms. This guy's a shepherd. I'm a priest. It's just my job. Uh, but they don't recognize the significance. But you know that God had chosen to dwell among His people. The Lord of hosts, the holy and almighty God, had chosen to come down into this world that is corrupted by sin, uncleanness, and evil, and death. And He had chosen to come and dwell among His people. He had chosen Jerusalem. And He had chosen to, to have His temple built there. And Haggai and Zechariah came and called the people to, to work, to complete the rebuilding of the temple. And the temple was to be a, 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 a symbol of His presence in the midst of His people. The temple was the way that God had chosen for His people to have access to Him. How could the holy God, uh, you know, how could sinful people approach the holy God by, by bringing sacrifices to the temple that was the way they would come and find forgiveness for their sins and receive life's God-giving holiness. And the altar in the temple was the place where sin could be atoned for. The wages of sin is death. But in God's justice and mercy, He willingly accepted the death of an innocent and blameless sacrifice as a substitute for the sinner. And so God... In His mercy and His grace, you know, the people deserve to die. But God mercifully determined that He would accept an innocent, blameless sacrifice as a substitute in the place of the sinner. And so the significance was bringing these sacrifices to make atonement for your sins so that you might approach a holy God without being consumed by His wrath. And the priest had failed to recognize the significance of what was happening, that the sacrifice would pay the wages, the sacrifice would die so the sinner could live. The altar was the starting place for the holiness of God's people where their sin was paid for and their sin was taken away and their sin was purged because of God's mercy. 
and the priest had lost sight of what they were called to do. And they were offering animals as sacrifices that did not meet the standard. They were offering the sick, the blind, the stolen. They were offering these sacrifices that did not meet God's standard. They were keeping the best for themselves and bringing God the leftovers, bringing God the things that, were, uh, that could not be used for other purposes. And so they were going through the motions of worship, but they weren't giving God the honor and the reverence that He deserved. They weren't bringing the first. They weren't bringing the best. They were bringing the leftovers. And, and uh, uh, he even says, you know, how would that work if you took this to the governor? How would the governor respond if you just brought your leftovers? And yet, you come before the Lord of hosts with the leftovers and expect him to accept you. Even that human sinful governor would not accept this offering. Uh, and yet, you expect the Lord to and then he calls the priest to repentance. Now entreat God's favor that he might be gracious to you. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? And, and what was the people's complaint? The people's complaint was, where's your love? We don't see your love. We don't see evidence of your love. We're not experiencing your, your blessing. And God says, well, because you're not living up to your end of the covenant. You're not offering acceptable worship. You're not offering acceptable sacrifices. And so do you expect God to bless your disobedience? Do you expect God to be gracious to you when you're not giving Him the honor and the reverence that He is due? Uh, if, if, this is, if you're offering the blame and the, the lame and the sick and the blind as sacrifices, you expect God to accept that and to bless that and to be gracious to you? Um, no. Verse 10, Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you do not kindle a fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. And so, uh, the Lord says, you know what? It would be better to turn out the lights and shut the door of the temple than for you to come and offer unacceptable sacrifices. It'd be better for it for the turn out the lights, shut the door, than to come in and attempt to offer worship that dishonors God. And that, that's kind of reminiscent to me. You remember the letters of uh, uh, in the, the, the churches in Revelation? The, the vision that John has of the risen, exalted Lord, he's there among the lampstands, and the lampstands, we're told, are the seven churches, and in his hand are the seven stars, the messengers, the angels of the seven churches. Well, God, uh, Jesus in the letters, he says, if you don't repent, I will come and take away your lampstand. Well, that's exactly the same thing he says to Israel. It would be better to shut the doors of the temple, to turn out the lights, than for you to come and offer unacceptable worship. Uh, uh, the, the Lord will turn out the lights. He will take away the lampstand of those who do not offer acceptable worship. Better for it to be shut than to be dishonoring to the Lord. And so he calls him to repentance. But then he, then he goes on to say in verse 11 that, that the, the Lord will be worshipped. The Lord will be praised. 
His purpose and His plan will be accomplished. Verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered in my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord. And so, the Lord had chosen to put His name in Jerusalem. He's chosen for the temple to be in Jerusalem. But if the people do not come and offer acceptable worship, acceptable sacrifices, He's going to turn out the lights and shut the door on the temple. And His name will be great among all of the nations. And we see that fulfilled in the New Testament. He will be worshipped. God will win the worship of all of creation. The ineffectiveness of the priest and their uh, their their uh, unacceptable worship will not thwart God's plan and purpose for all of creation. God will be worshipped in every place among all the nations, and these unworthy priests will not stop God's plan. It will not stop God's purpose. If they continue to offer unacceptable worship, He will turn out the lights and shut the door, but His name will be praised from where the sun rises to where the sun sets uh, among every nation. The only question is, will they be a part of it <laughs> and he goes on he says you you my name will be great among the nations but you profane it you my people are profaning my name you say the table of the lord is defiled its fruit is contemptible uh, it, it, you say what a weariness you sneer at it says the lord of hosts you bring the stolen the lame the sick thus you bring an offering should i accept it from your hand says the lord but cursed be the deceiver who has, a flock, has in his flock a male who takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And so God's name is going to be worshipped. These priests who are bringing unacceptable worship will not stop God's purpose and God's plan. And so He calls them to repent and be a part of what God is doing. Chapter 2, verse 1, And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and a curse upon your blessings. I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your face, the refuse of your solemn feast. This is a, a, a disgraceful thing. The... Uh, He's actually talking about uh, dishonoring the priest by the... Uh, uh, try to think of a nice way to say this. I guess there's not really a nice way to say it. <laughs> but the, the animals that come, uh, they defecate. And this is exactly what he is saying will be spread upon their faces. The defecation of the unacceptable animals that you bring. You dishonor me, you will be dishonored. I will spread that refuse on your on your face, the refuse of your solemn feast. And one will take you away with it, and you will know that I've sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi, the, the, the father of the priestly tribe, may continue. What was this covenant with Levi? One of life and peace, that he might fear me, reverent, honor, holy, teach the law to the people. And you do that, you will have a covenant of peace and equity. What's the role of the priest? Verse 7, to keep knowledge. The people should seek law from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. 
And so the covenant that God made with the priest was you will reverence my name, you will honor my name, you will ensure that the people are worshiping, offering acceptable worship, you will teach them the law, you will hold them accountable to the law. The priest is God's representative to speak to the people on behalf of God and to speak to God on behalf of the people to offer these sacrifices that God might forgive and purge and take away their sins. That was the role of the priest. And if they did that with reverence and honor and holiness they would walk before the Lord in peace and in life. But instead, verse 8, they've departed from the way and caused many to stumble at the law. They've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I've made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways but have shown partiality in the law. Not equal justice under the law but showing partiality. And so the priests have a, had a, an important responsibility. And the people and the priests would have life and peace if they feared the Lord and were reverent before Him. And the priest is to be a leader in worship, but he's also to be a teacher of the law. But instead of helping people to turn away from their sin and turn to the way of God's commandments, the priests are causing the people to stumble. They have become a stumbling block. They have become an obstacle. The priests have become an obstacle to obedience for the people. And because they have offered worthless sacrifices, they will be treated as worthless. Because they have dishonored God, they would be dishonored. Their scandal would be exposed. And so uh, uh, God says, I'm your father. I'm your master. I've chosen to love you. I've put my name upon you. I am protecting you and providing for you. Where's the honor and the reverence that I'm due? But you are offering worthless, unacceptable worship. You are complacent and lazy and bringing your leftovers to worship. And so, one of the things that we should learn from this text is uh, uh, this text should create a longing for a true priest, a great high priest, a high priest who will... Keep knowledge. A high priest who will uh, speak the law from his mouth. Be a messenger from the Lord of hosts. This passage shows us that the priesthood is unacceptable. It's fallen short of God's standard. And at the very close of the Old Testament, we're still looking for a priest. And then when we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, it's just one page in our Bible, but it's 400 years of human history. <laughs> and when we turn that page... 400 years later, we finally meet the acceptable high priest. The Old Testament closes with the office of priest corrupt and inadequate. But 400 years later, one page later, we meet the greater and perfect high priest. In the New Testament, we meet the perfect priest who is the son and perfect servant that meets every condition that God lays out. In the New Testament, we meet Jesus who makes the once and for all sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the, the sacrifice that is absolutely blameless. Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, became a man, tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. He was completely sinless, completely righteous, therefore being the, the perfect sacrifice for sins. And Jesus offers the perfect once-for-all sacrifice, His own self, His own body, His own blood, the perfect and blameless Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In the New Testament, the New Covenant, 
We have a great and perfect high priest that offers the acceptable sacrifice. And God shows that He's accepted that sacrifice by raising Him from the dead. God shows His pleasure. And Jesus is the perfect priest, the perfect pastor, teacher, the one who saves many from their sins. And it's in Christ that Malachi's prophecy of worldwide worship comes true. From the rising of the sun to its going down, Jesus shows the greatness of His name. And that pure offering of all nations is worship. Is, uh, worship is offered to the Lord of hosts in the name of Jesus, the Savior of our souls. And so we, we see... Uh, the fulfillment, the finally uh, an acceptable priest in Jesus Christ. And I think another thing we learn from this text is we have to guard ourselves against weariness in worship. It's very easy for us to fall into the same pattern as these priests to 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 just out of it's just what we do. What do we do at Sunday morning at eleven o'clock? We go to church. We get up, we go to church, and we we. We go through the motions. We do the things that we're supposed to do. We come on Wednesday night at 6.30 and we're, we just go through the motions. Um, we have to constantly be on guard against that and recognize that when we come to worship, we're coming into the presence of the Lord of hosts, our Father who has redeemed us by uh, the gift of His Son, uh, our Master who has uh, taken us and protected us and provided for us and saved us from our sin, paid the debt that we owed that we could never pay. We've got to guard ourselves against weariness and worship by constantly gazing on the love for us that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Malachi, before he calls them to worship, he reminds them, I have loved you, says the Lord. And we need to constantly be reminded of God's love for us. And we say, how have you loved us? And he says, I've given you my son. I've given you the greatest gift of all the gift of my son. If God never gives us another gift, if He never gives us another thing, if He doesn't give us another breath, He's already given us the greatest possible gift He could possibly give in His own Son, Jesus. And we need to remind ourselves of that great love. And when we find ourselves in a difficult season, when we find ourselves in a, in a time of our life that we're tempted to be dissatisfied, God. We, we might go for months or even years just without seeing any, any visible fruit. We can be tempted to slip into sloppy and lazy worship. We can, we can fall into the New Testament equivalent of offering, offering sick and crippled animals. We fail to bring God our best. We grow weary. We grow sloppy. We grow lazy. We go through the motions and we save the best for ourselves. Um, we, we save the best for ourselves instead of bringing it to God. We don't bring our best effort when we come to worship the Lord of hosts and the Savior of our souls. We have to guard ourselves against that. And that hour on that hour on 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when we come to worship the Lord of hosts, that ought to be the very best that we have. We ought to be at our best. We need to uh, uh, prepare all week to come Sunday morning at 11 o'clock 
and offer God our very best. Don't bring Him leftovers, but bring Him our best. And you know that starts on Monday. (laughs) And it goes all the way through Saturday night. Do what we can to ensure that when we come to worship, we're bringing God our best. We're bringing our attention. We're not coming uh, with laziness or complacency, but we're coming to worship the Lord of hosts. You know, Malachi tells us that God is infinitely glorious and He's holy and He will not, He cannot accept unworthy worship from us. His care for His name, for His own honor, for His glory, and His care for His people is too great to accept anything from us other than our best. To accept any worship from us other than how He has told us that He must be worshipped. He tells us, that, he, that if we are not going to offer God worship in the way that He demands, if we're not going to worship in spirit and truth, we might as well turn out the lights and shut the doors. A cold, dark, empty church is preferable to one where the people come and dishonor God by bringing sick and lame and lazy and sloppy worship. And so Malachi calls us to look at our worship. He's our Father. Where's His honor? He's our Master. Where's His reverence? And He calls us to examine our hearts and treat God's favor that He might be gracious to us. Examine our hearts and find where we are lacking and repent and turn from the sin of unacceptable worship. Fear the Lord, be reverent before His name, and walk in truth and justice and find peace. And constantly remind ourselves of the love that He has shown for us in Christ Jesus. We all, like Esau, deserve to have everything torn away. But in God's grace, He has sent Christ Jesus, who lived the sinless life, died on the cross to take away God's wrath, what we deserve, offering the once and for all perfect sacrifice for sin, the perfect blameless Lamb of God, giving us the greatest possible gift. He's loved us. He's accepted us in Christ Jesus. He protects and provides for us. And we owe Him our very best when we come to worship. Uh, We owe Him honor and reverence as Father, as Master, as Lord of hosts. Questions about Malachi chapter 1 and 2. First part of two. He reminds us of His love for Him, or His love for us. And His love for us should motivate acceptable worship in us and from us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give You praise. We give You praise because You're our Creator. We give You praise because You are our Redeemer and our Father. And You've adopted us into Your family. You've taken us under Your care. Protect, provide, paid the debt that we could not possibly pay. Lord, we are poor and needy. We are totally dependent upon You. And we thank You for Your mercy and grace. Now we pray that You would just, Your Spirit would... Just continue to remind us 
of the depth of Your love, the greatness of Your grace, the reality of Your mercy. And that that would never grow old, that would never grow stale. And Lord, that that would motivate in us acceptable worship. That we would give You the honor, the glory, do Your name. And Lord, that here in this place, Your name would be praised and that You would be honored and glorified. That You would be great and Your name would be made great in this place. Lord, we pray that that You would make 11 o'clock on Sunday morning the high point of our week where we bring our very best, our best attention, our best alertness, our reverence and our awe as we meet together to worship You. And we pray that our worship would be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that You would be glorified, that Christ would be honored, and that we would be conformed to His image. Thank You for Jesus and His sacrifice on our behalf that our sin might be taken away and that we might be brought to You and be made holy and blameless. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.